Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 66 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today live from a frosty hotel room in Chicago is someone I ran into the hallway. Well, not literally the hallway, but in Chicago. And now before I hand the mic over, we're doing this a little bit last minute, a little bit ghetto, a little bit bush mechanic, and we're sharing a microphone, so please bear with us. Welcome, Dr. Peter Stansky. We've strayed a little bit further from home today. We have, Shane. Hi, listeners. It's great to be back on the show as always. And uh, this is very different. We're coming to you from sunny Chicago, Illinois, uh, as opposed to sunny Melbourne, Australia. And for those of you who've, uh, it's a bit hard to miss the news. Uh, unfortunately, our country is burning, which is a little bit sad. So our hearts and minds and um, uh, and we were doing a lot of work behind the scenes to also help um, a lot of folks that are back at home as well. So um, to those that are listening, you know, it's a tough time for us. We've had a the worst fires I think we've ever had in uh, in history. We have. It's a little bit different here, Pete. It's my first time in Chicago. Been great walking the streets. Weather is very different, but nothing a jacket won't fix. And I find being on foot a great way to discover a new city. There's a lot to see here, by the way. It's um, I've been to, I've been to Chicago for the first time, and um, I brought my family as well. So I'm, I'm kind of mixing business and pleasure, and uh, everyone's loving it. So I highly recommend Chicago as a bucket list item for everybody. Um, seeing the lake is phenomenal. It's uh, a windy city for a reason. So those uh, warm jackets and gloves, Shane, are certainly uh, paying off uh, dividends, especially in thermal British units, TBUs. TBUs, we're measuring heat. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so listeners, in the last episode of AWS Tech Chat, I hopefully whet your appetite with some announcements that occurred between November 2019 and January 2020. But as I said, there was just so much to talk about. So in this episode of Tech Chat, we're going to continue with what we left off and continue the updates in that period. And being Tech Chat, we're going to cover these at the level you expect, but more importantly, ask the hard so what and why questions. Now, we didn't do the news in the last show. It was a little bit of a slow news month. But there is plenty to cover here, Pete. There's actually some announcements worth mentioning. So the best way to start the show off, I guess, is with a price cut. So the AWS DataSync uh, service has had a pretty hefty price cut. If you're familiar with the uh, DataSync service, uh, it does what it says. And the idea of uh, DataSync service is to provide you the ability to actually move your data from uh, on-premises uh, or from EC2 uh, to S3, or perhaps even the Elastic File Service. So the idea here is that uh, if you're on-premises, um, you run a basically a, a data sync agent, which comes in the form of a virtual machine uh, that connects to your NAS or your file system uh, to copy data into AWS and get it from AWS. Uh, it goes through the, obviously for the network, so make sure you've got a pipe that's uh, able to cope with that. So again, mindful of uh, capacity constraints on, uh, on your links. Uh, and the idea is that it finally hits the AWS sync service on the other side inside the target region where you actually deliver your bits and bytes into S3 or the Elastic File System. So it's really handy for um, customer use cases for migrations of data, obviously for transfer of, uh, of your information and replication and for archiving and fundamentally for all things business continuity, to be really honest. Uh, so data sync is really straightforward um, and uh, the usage is based on, uh, our pricing is based on usage as always. 
you pay for the amount of data the data sync actually transfers um, based on a flat fee. And the great news here is that from November the 1st, from uh, last year, so that's 2019, if you've just tuned in from a time machine, uh, we have reduced the price of uh, data sync by 68%, which is down to uh, 0.0125 uh, cents per gigabyte data transferred by the service itself. Yeah, and that is a very significant reduction here, Pete. You know, I was talking to a local customer in Australia who steered away from DataSync for BCP, so business continuity, because of the cost. So I'm going to get in contact with them. If you're listening, check your Slack messages. <laughs> and look, we know that cost uh, does influence architecture, all right? So, uh, you know, cloud economics obviously is a big deal here. So price changes always have obviously a positive influence. Uh, so it's always worthwhile to actually review your architectures in light of new price reductions. And of course, we always talk about you know new service availabilities. But so for those of you who have not used the service because perhaps you thought the price wasn't right for your, for your architecture, um, revisit that. Yeah, you know, your architectures are living. You know, on the region front, we are static at the moment, but it looks like the CloudFront team, Pete, are back from vacation, five new edge locations, bringing the total count to 216. That is pretty impressive. Uh, so the first edge locations in five new countries, Shane, which is pretty cool. So uh, we have one in uh, Nairobi in Kenya, which is in South Africa. We've also have uh, another one in Sofia in Bulgaria. Uh, we've also got Athens in Greece, Budapest in Hungary, a place that I've, all these places I've actually been to, uh, and, uh, and uh, Bucharest, Romania. Very, very cool. So uh, for those of you who are using the service, you can expect that if you are streaming anything or getting access to things, uh, you can expect up to a 50% uh, time reduction in access to the first byte in terms of latency, which means that uh, you know, your content will get to your end users a lot quicker. That certainly will. Okay, last episode I mentioned the Summit calendar is out for the year, but I didn't touch on it. But given we have someone here today, that's you, Pete, who mm-hmm. is so central in the planning to one of the first summits of the year, how about you tell our listeners all about it? So listeners, before I get to the Sydney Summit, uh, which is happening on the uh, 31st of March and uh, ends on, four days later, by the way, uh, on the 2nd of April uh, in Sydney, we will have some other summits ahead of us, which are the ones in Mexico City um, on the 4th of March. On the 17th of March, we have Paris, France. 24th of March, we have uh, Dubai in uh, United Arab Emirates. But on the Sydney front, uh, super exciting stuff. We've got four huge full days. Uh, it's an education conference. It's all about making our customers more aware of what's going on. We have a whole bunch of EBC, so an executive track, if you like, for a lot of folks. We have an innovation day. We have lots and lots of things for developers, uh, security folks, operations. We've added more tracks this year. Um, so for those of you who feel like you wanted some more, we're giving you a heck of a lot more. So uh, watch this space. Uh, if you continue to tune in, uh, we may be even able to give you maybe some discount codes for a few things. Tune in for the future. So. Any announcements you can let people know of, Pete, at Sydney? Perhaps uh, a service announcement or will there be a slot for tech chat? Well, you know what? Uh, Watch this space. Uh, Working very hard to make sure that perhaps we could even align some service launches at the same time. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. But that would be telling I told you now. So you may not even show up and tell you ahead of time. So just wait and see. I think we need to talk regarding that response, Pete, but no time now. Let's get on with the show. We're going to bucket these updates today and try and keep it somewhat logical. And what's a show without some container news? We didn't touch on containers last episode, so let's begin with some container updates. Sure. So look, the world isn't um, 
just about AWS events, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and, um, you know, something that's, that is very popular, though, is GitHub. It's pretty much the standard for source repositories used by a lot of developers worldwide. Um, and on day two keynote of GitHub Universe 2019 conference, which actually happened um, November 14th last year, uh, we announced that we have open sourced four new GitHub actions for Amazon ECS and ECR. So that's the container service and the container registry, um, which I think is pretty cool. Okay, so let me explain what this is. So GitHub Actions provide a convenient way to execute a CI/CD pipeline. They provide additional functionality for your repository. So action hooks, you know, like a pull when a pull request is made and a push when commits are pushed into your repo. These hooks can be connected so when an action occurs, an appropriate workflow runs on GitHub. And that's what we're here to talk about. So we've open sourced the following actions. So and you can find these at github.com forward slash AWS hyphen actions. So the first action, and we'll put notes about these actions in the show. The first action is to allow you to retrieve AWS credentials from GitHub secrets and make them available for use by the rest of the actions in the workflow. So you want to get your credentials out here. The second action is around Amazon ECR for login, which is going to allow you to log into your ECR registry so you can pull your images and then push them back into your ECR repo. The third one is to be able to create those task definitions for ECS, so render task definitions. So it's going to insert the ID of the container image into the task definition for ECS. And then lastly, we've got one that will deploy your task definition to ECS. So doing deployments generally is a pretty complex and uh, multi-step task, which often can end up being quite you know, error-prone. So for containerization of applications, the developer needs to be able to build the image, push it into a registry, create a manifest, um, uh, describing the application for the orchestration, you know, e.g. task definition uh, or the actual spec, uh, deploy the manifest, run the task, uh, and finally check if the app is healthy. So all these things will certainly help you along the way. Yeah, you know, that's complex and it's all about speed to market. And with these ECS GitHub actions, all of these steps can be automated, you know, the credentials, the secrets through to ECR and deployment, letting developers focus on iterating with a higher velocity and having GitHub handling the heavy lifting on the deployment front. That's really cool. And we've also got a couple of other announcements. So in fact, three EKS-related updates uh, to talk about. Now, the first one is pretty straightforward as it's basically a limit increase. Uh, you can now create up to 100 Amazon EKS clusters per region per account, which is an increase from the previous limit of 50 cl clusters per region per account. And by the way, um, just so you guys remember, you know, a soft limit versus a hard limit. The difference is hard limits are where we can't actually increase the limit. You'll actually find most of our services have uh, one of those because obviously life, you know, uh, doesn't scale infinitely. Uh, but we do try to meet that. Uh, but the soft limits fundamentally are all about those limits that can be increased. And the soft limits are there fundamentally to stop you from accidentally, from a rogue script, perhaps exceeding something. Yeah, that's a pretty high limit anyway. I was reading this thinking, wow, 100 EKS clusters per region, per account. But you know, as you mentioned, you know, it is a soft limit. So if you need more, you can submit a limit increase. Three EKS updates. You know, first one was a limit increase, and with those numbers, you know, moving from 50 to 100 EKS clusters per account, it's starting to highlight how much Kubernetes has been adopted by the industry and becoming, you know, that platform agnostic container orchestrator. And looking through my various tech feeds, I see that the US Air Force presented at KubeCon not too long ago. And in order to keep off innovation, they were able to deploy Kubernetes and Istio on an F-16 fighter jets, you know, it's really gaining momentum. 
And it's actually what's interesting about those things is that a lot of um, planes, especially the military ones, have multiple systems. So I believe, I think it was the F-16 actually. This is going back a while in my uh, my, my work career, but I believe they actually have uh, three different systems built by three different organizations uh, to make sure they all uh, operating. So if there's a bug in about one bit of software, you can do it uh, and make sure that the other system takes over. So pretty impressive stuff. Uh, yeah, hats off to the folks who tried putting, <laughs> uh, putting cubes inside of aircrafts. But anyway, um, moving on to the next update uh, and this one's around the plumbing aspects uh, of EKS. Um, now we now allow you to restrict access to your Kubernetes cluster public endpoint by specifying uh, IPv4 address ranges uh, inside a notation chain, which is very cool. Yeah, I and mean, I think you asked me this question, Pete, so many years ago when you interviewed me for this role. That's Let me see if I can explain. Go for it. So look, if you aren't familiar with CIDR notation or CIDR, you know, it's a compact representation of an IP address and it's associated routing prefix. So the notation is constructed from an IP address and the slash character, and then a decimal notation represents a subnet mask. So, you know, you may see slash 24. Well, that's the equivalent of 255.255.255.0. Exactly. And what does CIDR stand for? I think that was my original interview question. Classless interdomain routing. Great answer, Shane. All right, so this update also allows you to implement network-based access controls uh, to your public endpoint. So when we talk about endpoints, um, EKS supports public and private endpoints for the Kubernetes API server, which is basically secured using a combination of identity access management and native Kubernetes um, role-based access controls, or RBACs. So while um, the private endpoint is accessible only from within your cluster, cluster's VPC, uh, previously the public endpoint was open to the internet uh, and there was no way to restrict clients um, from making requests to the public endpoint without disabling it. So uh, this is a very handy feature. Yeah, not ideal there. So I guess now when the public endpoint is enabled, you can choose to further restrict the access by a specific IPv4 address range from which connection requests can be made. So if a client with an IP address outside this range you know, tries to connect, it's not going to be able to connect. You know, we're going to reject it. Mm-hmm. And this can be configured using the AWS console and SDK or EKS CTL. So that's an interesting update here. Maybe I need to go back and do my homework, but why would you expose your EKS control plane out there? Great question. But it fundamentally goes back to giving our customers choice, right? And we all know that customers have different use cases. Uh, you know, we hear about, you know, uh, RDS servers being open to the internet as well. So, you know, not that you want to do that. So you definitely want to do lock things down by a CIDR range or a nice specific IP address, so slash 32, uh, hopefully, to yep. specify the exact uh, source um, of the IP traffic that's actually coming in. What happens if it's IPv6, Pete? What is it? Slash... What's a slash 32 equivalent? <laughs> to slash 128? Because <laughs> they are four, four times bigger. Some homework for you. Oh, man. Well, look, moving on. Um, the other cool thing that also um, is, is also this is the third and final update for EKS is uh, not to be dismissed by any means. Um, it's also around network plumbing, but it's, it's to do with um, the private endpoints. You can now resolve the private EKS cluster endpoint uh, name when using a peered VPC, which is very cool. So this allows you to access a cluster using, um, well, access the cluster uh, using another VPC by using DNS, which means that you can now resolve the name of the endpoint from a different VPC. So whether you are coming from a peered VPC or perhaps uh, over direct connect, you can access that. So as I mentioned, uh, when you 
uh, use the private endpoint and when you actually have enable it, EKS automatically uh, advertises the private IP address of the private endpoint uh, from the public public endpoint. <laughs> so clients such as the, the Kube's CLI tools uh, that actually use the public endpoint uh, as part of the connection when they do a DNS resolve, uh, they actually uh, first will resolve that no matter where they are uh, and will be able to actually get connectivity whether you're coming through a peer VPC or elsewhere automatically. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting update here. So we're pushing the private IP address to the public interface here. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're publishing it that way. So via DNS, you're going to resolve the private IP address from the public endpoint. And I just want to call out this feature is only available for all newly created EKS clusters from December 13th, 2019. Now, the last update in the container space is not around EKS, surprise, surprise, but it targets ECS and more so Fargate. Now, we could have used this in the news, Pete, as when used correctly, it could be used to save quite a bit of money. So the update here is Fargate now supports Spot for applications orchestrated by Amazon ECS. So no EKS, just Amazon ECS. Spot on. And the cost savings here can be quite substantial, as you just call that, all the way up to 70%. So if you're familiar with how EC2 spot instances work, the idea is pretty much the same. Um, We use our spare capacity to run your tasks, basically. So when the capacity for Fargate spot is available, you'll be able to launch tasks based on your specific requests. And when we need the capacity back, um, tasks running on Fargate spot will be interrupted with a two minutes notification warning that they will be shut down. This is not going to be a fit for all you know tasks here, as your tasks could be interrupted. You should not run tasks on Fargate spot that can't tolerate interruptions. However, for your fault tolerant workloads, this feature could be for you. This service is an obvious fit for paralyzable workloads like you know image rendering, you know those Monte Carlo simulations or online websites and APIs which require high availability. So here's how it works, and I know we've spoken about the ALB integration with Spot and having options. This isn't too dissimilar, and we make it you know really simple to wire this up. So when configuring your service auto-scaling policy, you can specify the minimum number of regular tasks that should run at all times, and then add tasks running on Fargate Spot to improve service performance in a cost-effective way. So when the capacity for Fargate Spot is available, the scheduler will launch tasks to meet your request. If the capacity for Fargate Spot stops being available, Fargate Spot will scale down while maintaining the minimum number of regular tasks to ensure you know, your application's availability. And it's really worth calling out that Fargate Spot is available in all regions where Fargate is available. Yeah, and look, there's a great blog post on how to wire this up, but just put simply, it's kind of like the ALB integration with EC2. Mm. You specify the minimum amount of uh, Fargate containers that need to run at all times, and you can say burst into a spot. So really cool here. Another nice update that occurred right before Christmas, also related to spot. You know, we've spoken about the benefits of spot, but we know observability is a key to running systems effectively. So how do you detect when a spot instance launches? It could be a script you have in your user data, you know, you trigger it on startup. It could be the describe spot instance request API. Perhaps you poll it every minute. It could be CloudTrail. And that's a real uh, police scare <laughs> in the background. So welcome to America. Uh, but look, um, back to the show though. Um, and uh, look, that's all really cool, but it is a bit of a heavy lifting that you have to do yourself. And uh, you do need to write something to parse all of the above and uh, 
then send off to a trigger. So there is actually now a better way, uh, very similar to the uh, GitHub Actions we spoke about earlier uh, at the start of the show. Uh, this is using CloudWatch events. You can think of CloudWatch events as the central nervous system for all of your AWS environments, right? So it's wired into every nook and cranny of our supported services and becomes aware of operational changes and they can notify you. So now it supports EC2 spot CloudWatch events, which is really handy. Yeah, and just to be clear here, it's only EC2 spot, not Fargate spot that we just spoke about before. Good call out, Shane. So by um, setting up you know, really simple rules to match those events, you can now route via CloudWatch events spot notifications into one or more targets or perhaps streams. Uh, and we know that um, CloudWatch events, you can basically do everything with those, right? So wiring into Lambda functions or other notification mechanisms. So for example, you could, step, you could set up a rule that automatically relays a, a launch event of every EC2 spot instance to an SNS topic that gets a push notification. And yeah. perhaps uh, maybe send it to your internal monitoring platform or system uh, or tool to start monitoring an instance as it becomes available. Yeah, and look, as I just mentioned before, it doesn't work with spot outside of EC2. And to be crystal clear, it will work for EC2 spot instances launched via all available methods, such as EC2 auto-scaling, EC2 fleet, spot fleet, run instances API, or request spot instances API. Time to now pivot to some messaging updates. So let's start with SES or the simple email service. You know, spam is an issue that has plagued email from the early 90s. But today, you know, with Bayesian filters, real-time block list, send a policy framework and domain keys, you know, I seldom get any spam anymore. Which is and handy, but it occasionally still gets through, but it's, yeah. not, it's, it's much better than it used to be. It yeah. is way better than what it used to be, trust me. And the first update is on domain keys or DKIM, looking through the lens of SES. And before I get you, Pete, to walk us through the update, let's level set on DKIM. Put simply, DKIM is an authentication method for email designed to detect forged sender addresses in email. So we're talking spoofing here, which is often used for phishing and spam where the email is being sent appears to come from a legitimate sender. To basically explain, as we, you know, we could go really deep here, the premise is really, you know, the SMTP server, which is sending the email, will send the email with a DKIM signature. And the DKIM signature is based on an RSA 256 hash, and it's hashing certain parts of the headers. Now the receiving SMTP server is gonna query the sender's address via DNS. And they're gonna look at their DNS zone. It's gonna look for the DKIM text record. So you know, set type equals text, it's a text record in DNS. And it's gonna leverage the public key. So the public key is gonna be in that text record. It will then use this key to validate the authenticity of the sent mail. So that's a high level overview of DKIM. Pete, tell us what the update is here. Indeed, so with SES, it will now allow you to use your own public private key pairs to configure domain identified mail, so DKIMs for your email sending domains. Uh, there are a few reasons why you may want to bring your own DKIM keys. And um, you know, firstly, perhaps you are migrating from an on-premises SMTP infrastructure and you want to use an existing DKIM key, it's well known. Uh, perhaps you have some configurations with your recipient parties, uh, or it can be used uh, by customers who use the same domain to send emails across several AWS regions, perhaps, or across separate AWS accounts. Uh, perhaps for regulatory reasons, you need to be able to send emails within a country, uh, and this means a specific AWS region. So there's lots of use cases where you know you want to want to make want to ensure that you're coming across as the same organization. 
And additionally, if you use Amazon SES to send emails on behalf of your customers, so perhaps you're a uh, you know somebody who does bulk emails for other organizations, you know e- e- electronic. Um, mail deliveries, uh, you can actually send um, emails and we have your customers using uh, your own DKIM keys as well, if you want to do, do that as well, because they haven't got theirs. Uh, so the idea of uh, bring your own DKIM keys is really useful. So see our documentation on how to bring your own DKIM keys, or if you're starting from scratch, you can create a DKIM key using OpenSSL to generate your RSA key. All right, moving on, uh, the next update is uh, for those of us uh, in the US and Canada customers, um, and it's fundamentally around SES is now providing support for FIPS uh, 140-2 compliant endpoints. There are a lot of security standards out here, and FIPS 140-2 isn't something we're all up to speed. I know, I'm definitely not. So Pete, please tell us more. Okay, so FIPS uh, 1402 stands for the Federal Information Processing Standard. So 140-2 is a US and Canadian government standard that specifies the security requirements for cryptographic modules that protect sensitive information. Uh, It's been standardized all the way back since 2001, so it's been around for quite a while. Uh, There are four levels that it supports, and we are talking today about being level two compliant. And what that means is at level two, the cryptography that we use uh, needs to be performed on a um, a special module, and it requires that Evidence is shown of any potential tempering, which includes tempering evidence coating and seals that must be broken to attain physical access to the uh, plaintext cryptographic keys. So we're typically, you know, talking in the realms of HSMs or hardware security modules, mm-hmm. I believe here. Yeah. So look, we digress. So to use a FIPS compliant connection, specify an Amazon SES FIPS endpoint when you connect to the Amazon SES API. And because of this, FIPS 140-2 validated endpoints are only available in US East, North Virginia, and US West Oregon regions. Now, the last announcement around SES is another feature that is helping simplify managing the hygiene of your email list. And email hygiene is so important. I've touched on it in the past, but we all need to be good internet citizens. When an SMTP receiver receives an email, apart from DKIM and SPM checks, a very common check is to look up the sending server's IP address against a real-time block list. You know, if there's a match, then the email is rejected. So you're going to get a match here because you're sending SMTP server is sending out you know a lot of uh, you know spam or unsolicited email. People have complained. And these real-time block lists mark your IPv4 address as, you know, don't trust email from this server. So, Pete, you often ask myself pop quizzes, but I think it's my turn now to switch the tables. <laughs> Do you know how SMTP servers query these RTBLs or real-time block lists? Well, you know, we've been talking about naming resolutions a little bit just before. Would that be a good hint? It is, it is, it is. Look, well, it uses DNS with specific response codes, which are 127.0.0.1 and 127. 127- 002 and 3. This brings back a lot of memories using DIG and NSLOOKUP against these RTBLs, real-time block list. So we want to and need to be good email citizens. And otherwise, you know, you're going to get blocked. And because SAS is a shared service, we, being Amazon, take a pretty zero tolerance for customers that are either sending junk mail, sending unsolicited email, or sending email to addresses that don't exist, so SMTP 5x codes, or perhaps maybe you know you've got a form on your website that's been hacked or something like that, and you're just you know spewing out messages. We provide you logs, and there's even been a great blog post on how to process these, 
And I would recommend to all customers, you know, that you should be processing our logs and adjusting your mailing list accordingly when an email address doesn't exist or someone complains about the email that you're sending. This can be hard work and it often takes, you know, us, Amazon, suspending your SES account for customers to often take action. But there is now a better way, Pete. Yes, there is a better way. Um, and that's because we now have something called account level suppression lists. Um, and, it, uh, and the blog post kind of talks about building one of, your, one of, one of those yourself. That's but we're doing it for it you. Uh, we're doing it for you. Exactly. So this is going to help you to avoid sending emails to addresses that previously perhaps resulted in a bounce back or a complaint um, uh, and without having to wire up or, you know, or doing really anything yourselves. So unlike... Uh, so. The global suppression list uh, is what we manage on your behalf and it applies to all customers. Uh, and the account level suspension list uh, only applies to your AWS account in the current region. So when you configure the account level suppression list, you specify whether addresses should be added to the list when they result in hard bounces, uh, when they perhaps result in a complaint or perhaps both. Addresses that result in hard bounces are also added to the global suppression list. Um, that's obviously because the email bounce, right? Doesn't exist. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, help all customers here. Exactly. So an advantage of using the account level suppression list is that it gives you more control uh, over which addresses are added to the list. So additionally, you can query the account level suppression list, and you can manually add or remove addresses from the account level suppression list by using your Amazon SES APIs. Uh, and because you have a list and an API, you can then query this to update your own mailing lists as well. So you can actually have those two in sync to make sure you know which ones need to be scrubbed. Um, and this is removing a lot of the heavy lifting that you would have to do yourself. So fundamentally, uh, the account level suppression list is available in the following AWS regions. So it's in US East Virginia, US West Oregon, Europe Dublin, Europe Frankfurt, Asia Pacific Mumbai, and Asia Pacific Sydney, which yeah. is great. And I just want to call out, this is not a silver bullet. So as you just mentioned, Pete, we're going to provide, you know, you can query this list via an API, but you still need to update your list. Um, you know, maybe you can query our API and then correlate it against your list. You know, it removes a lot of the heavy lifting for you, but you still need to do something here to ensure your list is hygienic. And look, customers also often have to go through uh, do not contact, uh, opt-in, opt-out systems. Um, so having those in another list form is actually also quite handy, especially when you pick up abuses. Correct, okay. So the last update on the messaging front is not about SES, it's about SNS. So, you know, changing the acronym one letter here <laughs> or the simple notification service. Hey, Pete, do you remember about two to three months ago, we spoke about SNS retry policy on TechChat? We did, yes. Of course, we remember that. And we spoke about the retry mechanisms uh, for each delivery type that SNS actually supported. I'm glad you remember. And hopefully, listeners, you do too. If not, it was episode 59. But we announced a very important update for SNS. That is, we now have dead letter queue functionality. So dead letter queues or DLQs, in general, make your application more resilient and durable by storing messages in case your subscription endpoint becomes unreachable. SNS DLQs, or dead letter queues, in general, make your application more resilient and durable by storing messages in case your subscription endpoint becomes unreachable. Now, DLQs, I'm just going to call them DLQs, are stored in Amazon SQS, which, Pete, is really good because it's SQS, it's super durable, and there are plenty of patterns to read from SQS. To receive notifications when an undeliverable message is moved to a DLQ, you can set up a CloudWatch alarm and then can analyze CloudWatch logs to troubleshoot messages you know, when delivery failure occurs in a more efficient way. The DLQ is attached to an SNS subscription, so the subscription rather than the topic, because message deliveries that happen at the subscription level. This lets you identify the original target endpoint for each message a lot easier. 
You can change the message retention period using the Amazon SQS set queue attributes API action. And to make your applications more resilient, you know, I'd probably recommend setting the maximum retention period for a dead letter queue to around 14 days. So I've spoken about the, you know, overall here, Pete, but mm -hmm. how do we do this? So the way we do this is the um, these messages that are essentially undelivered uh, are moved into a dead letter queue using what we call a redrive policy, Shane. And a redrive policy is fundamentally it's just a JSON object that refers to the uh, ARN or the Amazon resource name of the actual dead letter queue. So the dead letter uh, target ARN attribute specifies that particular ARN, and the ARN must point to an Amazon SQS queue in the same AWS account and region as your SNS subscription. So be aware of that one. Uh, and also be aware that uh, you can't currently use Amazon SQS FIFO queues uh, as a dead letter queue for your SNS subscriptions. And uh, that's, uh, I would say, probably because uh, the volume, you could have tens of thousands of emails being sent in parallel. And um, uh, FIFO queues are designed more for first in, first out. Um, not quite the best use case. So find them, if, you, if you do want to do this, uh, use this feature, uh, you can wire this up using the, the, the console, the AWS CLI, but please make sure you update it to make sure you have uh, pulled in the latest updates, uh, as well as the AWS SDK for Java. So the Amazon SNS uh, DLQs are available now in all commercial AWS regions. Awesome. Okay, DLQs, great. So Pete, we're running out of time here today and still more I want to talk about. So I think we've got time for just another one here. One more. One, one more. more. Yeah. Right. Okay, one more. So this is a pretty important update as we transition you know, towards an event-driven architecture and Lambda becomes more of a norm. You know, time flies. Lambda has just turned five years old and it's been adopted heavily, not only for glue between applications, but for also single-page applications. So Pete, in the field, you know, do you know what one of the biggest objections I hear around Lambda is? Well, maybe not an objection, but a concern. A concern. Well, let me just work it into where we are today. So we're in Chicago and it's very cold. Would it relate to cold starting perhaps? Oh, boom. I think you've got it here. And look, we touched on this in our reInvent recap of uh, Andy Jassy's keynote. Exactly. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper here today because it's absolutely worth you know speaking more about it. So we're talking about cold start performance. So in the world of Lambda, Lambda functions are run on demand and then you know they're thrown away when they're not needed. We instantiate a container you know, and we keep it warm for you. But when it's not needed, because there are no hits, we tear it down. And it's not just when the function is dormant. You know, in fast scaling events, we need to provision more of those containers. You know, if you need VPC connectivity, we need to attach an ENI. And all of this leads to an initial hit that can take time. And depending on the runtime, it can be close to, you know, 30 seconds maybe, maybe even more. Um, you know, you've got that ENI. You know, I'm looking at you, Java and .NET here, probably the biggest culprits. All of these efficiencies of running the function only when needed leads to the phenomenon dubbed as cold starts. So Pete, there are ways around this and it boils down to what I've found to two different strategies. Cold starts aren't a thing in production, you know, because you're under constant load. Things don't go idle. So that's one way, you know, to look at it. Maybe it'll occur in your development environment, but realistically in production, it's not really a thing. Or you have monitoring and your monitoring platform is hitting that function every X minutes, effectively keeping it warm. Exactly. So this new feature that we're speaking of is called, that, that helps to deal with the cold starts, is fundamentally called Lambda Provision Concurrency. So this feature fundamentally keeps uh, your code initialized. It's always hyper ready to respond, uh, you know, in super record time to any incoming requests. So fundamentally gone are the, uh, you know, uh, thousands of millisecond delays uh, that you spoke of, Shane, to get things started. So with Lambda Provision Concurrency, we are ready to respond in double digit milliseconds. Perfect. 
So for most applications, um, this additional latency is not a problem, right? As you just said, because uh, you might have already solved it by pre-warming it. Uh, but for some apps, uh, however, this latency may be uh, not acceptable. And you may be implementing you know, interactive servers that require real-time responses, or backends for mobile apps, uh, web apps, uh, you know, uh, apps and systems that fundamentally need to respond in milliseconds and you know, um, super fast response, responsiveness. So low latency is not an option. So to configure provision concurrency, you can do this via a number of different ways. In the, in the console, you enable it on a function um, by function basis. Uh, it's basically in the configuration tab and you simply specify the number of provisioned invocations. At the same time, you wanna uh, keep in play uh, so this thing can actually handle your scaling events. So fundamentally, you either set it to an, an alias or a version uh, of, your, of your Lambda functions and basically the number of concurrent connections you require. Yep. So, yeah, yes. And that's a number of concurrent connections you need to handle without performing a scaling event. Correct. So you can also, uh, once you've set it in play, uh, you can validate provision concurrency by simply working out uh, the measurement of latency uh, before the first invocation actually happens. So tools such as JMeter are commonly used uh, to figure those things out. So this is a great feature, but unfortunately it's not free, Shane. Uh, you do have to pay for this because we are keeping this container sitting around and lingering. Uh, and the price is a little bit different per region. And to give you an example of pricing in US East, so it's in Virginia, it's point. Uh, uh, 0.015 cents per gigabyte hour for the provision concurrency, and it's 0.035 of a cent per gigabyte hour of duration. So as you know, when you uh, cost a Lambda function, it's obviously how long it runs and how much memory it consumes. Uh, and the number of requests is also charged at the same rate as normal functions. So there are some great blog posts out there to help you get started on this. Um, think of it as another tool in your toolbox uh, that may uh, make your Lambda applications, I guess, more performant uh, and provide you with a much more consistent uh, API response time. Yeah, so look, you're effectively paying a premium to have your Lambda functions ready to run and be able to serve X amount of uh, concurrent connections. Correct. Now, I know I said we need to end the show, but let's sneak one more in here. <laughs> and dare I say, it's pretty similar to what we just mentioned with Lambda. So we'll be really quick here. EBS snapshots. Ever since day dot at AWS, there has been a performance penalty on the restore side of things. You need a pre-warmer. It's as simple as that. And by pre-warm, you know, you need to initialize the block storage device. In simple terms, you need to read the disk, you know, in order to ramp up the performance. And there are various ways to do this. You can leverage a DD command on your Linux-based OSs, or even things like a check disk on Windows, because you need to read all those blocks here. The solution here is a feature now called the Fast Snapshot Restore, or FSR. You can enable it for new and existing snapshots on a per availability zone basis, and then create new EBS volumes that deliver their maximum performance uh, and do not need to be initialized as what uh, Shane just described. Just remember, you know, um, your backups, uh, your snapshots go into S3 and they have to be rehydrated into an availability zone, hence why you have to select an AZ. Now, this performance enhancement will allow you to build AWS-based systems that are even faster and more responsive uh, than before. So fast boot times will speed up your, say, your VDI infrastructure and also perhaps allow your auto-scaling groups to come online quicker and faster when you're processing vast volumes of data, uh, especially if you have very large or custom um, AMEs that you perhaps you may have built. And I'm sure that you will soon dream up lots of new applications and use cases that take advantage of this. And I know a couple of customers who actually um, uh, will find this a very useful feature. So fast snapshot uh, restores, or F 
SRs uh, can be enabled on a snapshot even while the snapshot is being created, Shane, which is really good to know. So if you create a nightly backup snapshot, uh, enable them for FSR, it will actually allow you to do fast restores, uh, perhaps the following day, or regardless of size of the volume or the snapshot. You know, when you keep mentioning FSR, I keep thinking FSO. So for those back there in the Microsoft land, file system <laughs> objects, nothing to do with it here. So Indeed. Pete, there's a catch here. And as Spider-Man says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And in this scenario, it's cost. You know, right. this is a great feature, but you need to pay for this. So Fast Snapshot Restore, FSR, is charged in data service unit hours for each availability zone in which it's enabled. DSUs are billed per minute with a one hour minimum duration. And the price of one FSR DSU hour is 75 cents US per AZ. So at 75 cents per hour, you need to use this wisely. You know, you could probably run up quite a sizable bill you here. You could, you could, especially if you're a large enterprise. So it's very important that you are uh, very frugal. So use great responsibility because this is your wallet that, uh, that you're going to be losing. Uh, so fundamentally, you can use this feature uh, across multiple AZs, it's, a, it's per hour priced, uh, you can enable it via the CLI, via cloud formation, and of course, via the console. Yeah, um, that's it, you know, it's another option. You don't need to use this, but you can. Of course, and look, you, you will find it when you need it, uh, and that's, usually, that's what we have, and you look at the platform, I mean, we have so many features within its service, uh, so, being aware of it is the first thing. Uh, and then one day you will definitely find there will be a use case for this. Yeah. Like I said, I know at least a five. Maybe you're you know, you're trying to, you know, you've got an emergency and you need to restore a machine from a snapshot and it's gonna take hours otherwise. Mm -hmm. Great option for it here, you know, to yeah. quickly hydrate it. And speed is everything. Speed is everything. So there we go. That was a quick lowdown on this feature being FSR. Pete, I think we're done here. We're done, yes, and uh, look, we're, we're here in uh, in Chicago for actually our own internal conference. It's sort of like uh, an internal AWS uh, reInvent, I guess, isn't it? It is. That's a pretty good way to sum it up. But I think it is definitely for me, because I'm not staying on, time to pack the suitcase and head on out of here. Listeners, I hope you've had a good break, and this show has you know, eased you into the new year. It almost seems like the year is about to get very real very soon. So to close out the show today, let's quickly summarize. Today we covered some of the missed but very important updates that occurred in the last few months of last year and into this year. We started the show with some container news. Firstly, we open sourced four GitHub actions. You know, they provide hooks to accelerate your CI CD pipeline. They relate to credentials, secrets, through to ECR and deployment into ECS. And it's all integrated in with GitHub, letting them do the heavy lifting of your deployments. EKS being all popular has had a limit increase, 100 clusters per region per account as well as two networking-related updates, ACL restrictions to public endpoints, and the ability to resolve the private EKS cluster endpoint when using the peered VPC. Finally, on the container front, we launched Fargate Spot, only for ECS, but it allows you to save up to 70%. And with Amazon EC2 Spot now providing instant notifications via CloudWatch events, this allows you to um, be up and ready and get visibility into and monitor your potential infrastructure as it comes up and down on spot. So lots of messaging updates as well. We have SES now enables you to bring and um, bring your own DKIM keys, uh, your own key pairs. Uh, SES now also supportive of FIPS uh, 140-2 compliant endpoints. Uh, SES also announced um, account level suppression list, which actually helps you to specify whether addresses should be added to that list, whether they're be because of them being bounced or perhaps being reported uh, via the complaints uh, or, or both. 
And SNS now brings support for dead letter queues, which means you can now see dead letter uh, events uh, delivered to you via an SQS queue. Lambda now provides support to allow you to provision capacity, allowing you to prevent cold starts, and it is another tool in your toolbox that makes Lambda more applicable to more workloads that require consistent latency. And lastly, EBS Fast Snapshot Restore eliminates a need for pre-warming data into volumes created from snapshots. I think we're done here, Pete. Fancy this hay all the way on the other side of the world in Chicago. Awesome. And I think you know, one of the early shows, we had somebody write to us saying, hey, to listen to us while they're shoveling snow. So now we can fully appreciate the magnitude of the, temp- of the temperature when you are shoveling uh, piles of snow here on the northern part of the world. I've seen plenty of snow. Indeed. And my kids are here with me as well in Chicago and the family. And uh, yeah, they've been making snow angels. Snowball fight, Pete? Uh, well, I just said, be, uh, just avoid anything that resembles yellow. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, you know what to do. Keep the feedback coming. Let us know what works, what doesn't. AWS tech chat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. Now, we'll be back in a few weeks time with a deep dive session of your choosing. But until next time, bye for now. And keep on building. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.